want to welcome everybody uh, to today. This is week five of our Summer at Victory series. Uh, and so I've kind of told you guys a little bit, it's not really a series. This is just a one-off each week, an idea or a, a topic that we study, we decide to look at in the Bible uh, that helps us in our spiritual journey. Something that we can study, something that we can look at, something that we can pull out that maybe doesn't need an entire series, but still important to uh, our spiritual journey as we walk this out. And so I just want to encourage you guys today, we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, and that is the one I always go to when we were between series, and that is the subject of faith. If you ever give me a chance to talk about anything that I want to, if we're out on a mission trip or we're anywhere, whatever it is, and I have an opportunity to speak and just pick anything that I want, I like to talk about the topic of faith. Because Hebrews talks about in chapter 11 or chapter 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so I don't know about you, you can kind of make up your own mind, but when I stand before my maker, I wanted to say, well done, Ben, I'm pleased. And if the Bible says it's impossible to please him without faith, then we need to understand the life of faith. And as your pastor, I think it's important that you understand the life of faith, that as you begin to live this out, as you begin to pray, as you begin to do, honestly, live life with your families, you begin to just live out this Christian walk, it's important that you live a life of faith. It's important that you live that before God because God's promises and God's fulfillment of those promises come into our lives through faith. It's the vehicle God has given us to fulfill what he has promised to do in our lives. It comes through our faith. The interactions you see with Jesus all throughout the New Testament and the Gospels, you see him interact with people always depending on their faith. And so I think we ought to understand that. So we're going to study a story in 2 Kings, and I'm going to set it up for you guys, the story. But chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll get there in about 45 minutes. All right, everybody? So if you want to go ahead and pull out your Bible, something to take some notes with, we're going to study God's Word together out of 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9. Now the story, I'll set it up for you. There are three kings who honestly are not the greatest of friends, all right? They don't really like each other. They're usually enemies. But they found themselves in an unlikely alliance because they found a common enemy. Isn't it funny how we find allies when we have a common enemy? Some of you are thinking about your boss or your teacher right now, right? When we have a common enemy, we often find unlooked for allies. And so that's what happens to these guys. And so they get together and they decide they're going to go to war. They're going to join each other in an alliance and go to war. And so they thought they would stack the odds. So it's three against one. They thought they would do something that really did not need God to be in the middle of it in their minds. They had enough people, they had enough soldiers, they had enough armies, they they had the armies that they needed. And so they thought that they would go ahead and stack the odds and go to war three against one. And so they, they get together, they decide this, but things don't work out exactly how they want them to. And I like this story, all right, out of 2 Kings 3, because things don't, they don't turn, even from the beginning, nothing happens the way that these three kings plan. So we'll join our three stooges, right, in verse 9. And so it's the king of Israel set out, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. These are our three. And they set out to go to war, but they don't go straight to the battle. After a roundabout march, they march in circles for about seven days. They're doing this big loop-de-loop. Watch what happens after seven days. The army had no more water for the animals or for themselves. So they march in circles. How many know that's a bad plan, all right? This is not a trick question. That is a bad plan. Instead of going straight to the battle, they march in circles. And instead of going to fight, they eat all of their food, all right? Come on, come back to your college days, everybody. They eat all the food that they have, and so there's no more water for themselves. They use up all their supplies, and they're thinking, we don't know what we're going to do. Verse 10, what, exclaimed the king of Israel, 
Come on. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? You ever pray prayers like that? God has called us into the desert to die. Come on. He is just, what? I don't know what's going on in my life. I don't understand what's, I don't understand. It's the Lord. And remember, the Lord didn't call them nowhere. These are the three kings deciding what they're going to do. But like us, they have now shifted blame to God. And so he says that he called us out to die. So Jehoshaphat said, watch this. Is there no prophet of the Lord here? Through whom we may inquire of the Lord. Come on, they're a little late to the game about inquiring of the Lord. But he decides in the middle of their trouble, can we inquire of the Lord? And let me just highlight this for you. Because I think sometimes we take for granted, uh, oftentimes, myself included, that we live in the New Testament. And so it's too often we take for granted uh, this idea that in old times, right, they had to go to the prophet to find out something from God. Now, the Bible tells us when Jesus died on the cross, when he rose again, that the veil was torn in the temple from the top to the bottom, which means you no longer need me to hear from God. You understand that, right, everybody? Like the Holy Spirit speaks to everyone. That's an incredible thing I think we take for granted so often that he would speak to all of us. But in these times, in the Old Testament, they had to go, they had to kind of all load up and go to the man of God and they would ask him and he would pray and then God would speak to him and he would tell them what he said. And so an officer of the king of Israel answers him and he says, Elisha, son of Shaphat is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So Elijah was this great prophet we studied last month. Incredible miracles, did huge things, a man of God, had all called down fire from heaven, rain, all this stuff that Elijah did. And now he's gone. And so his next in line, Elisha, is kind of his protege. But he's fairly untested. Not a lot of public miracles, all right? Not a lot of big things. And so he's kind of unknown. But Jehoshaphat said, okay, the word of the Lord is with him. We can trust this guy, all right? This is, this is good. So it, it, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom... They load up in the bulletproof Escalade and they roll down to see the prophet. All right. This is what they're they're headed down to get a word from the Lord. So here's what's going on. All of these guys who are normally enemies, they found a common enemy. They've allied themselves. They form this alliance. They're going to war. They run out of food. They run into this out of supplies, no water for their animals or for their people. They're, they're completely stranded. And so now they've decided we need to get a word from the Lord. It's the first lesson we learn in faith. And, of course, I have preaching disease, and so I have three lessons for you today. All right, everybody? And so the first one, jot it down if you're taking notes, and that is that faith is often triggered by opposition. So these three guys who aren't normally serving the Lord, not all of them at least, I finally run up against something. They're in alliance. They can't figure out what to do. They thought they had stacked the odds. They've hit opposition, and faith is often triggered by opposition. It's fascinating to me watching even in my own life, but especially here in America, it's fascinating to me how obsessed with comfort we have become. And honestly, I see it in my own life just kind of sneaking up where I don't even recognize it till I suddenly look and think, why, why am I so obsessed with comfort there? But we have been obsessed with comfort. We like peace. We like to be comfortable. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, especially with physical. It's not inherently wrong to want to be comfortable, but we live in a first world country. And so often we have first world problems. You guys have heard of this term, right? First world problems. You've heard of this before where it's just something that occurs that may not occur to someone else. Like I was in Greenville Springs Library about three months ago. And I found I was just minding my own business. But there were two girls going around trying to find change for a $20 bill because they wanted to buy something out of the vending machine. And all they had were 20s. Now, that is a first world problem, all right? You want to buy something out of the vending machine, but all you have are 20s. That is a first world problem. Or some of you people that complain, right, when your leftovers don't fit in the fridge. You have too much food in the fridge to fit your leftovers, and you are complaining about it. That is a first world problem. 
But we like comfort, and I like comfort too, all right? I'm not blaming all of you. I enjoy comfort. About 13, 14 years ago, we used to have an 85 Dodge Ram Charger here at the church. It was the work truck kind of doing around. And I've been on serve days and go teams and the rest, and so I kind of know the truck culture of our church. And so I know we've got our Ford people. Come on, where are my Ford people at? Anybody Ford? No Ford people? There we go. All right, we got fix or repair daily, right? Ford, that's what it's for. <laughs> Stays for. Where are my Chevy GM people? Come on, Chevy GM, general mistake. Come on, I'm going to split the church right now. I got you guys. <laughs> but where are my Dodge people at? Any Dodge people in the house? All right. But we had a Dodge Ram Charger 85. You guys can imagine what that thing looked like. All right, about 3 million miles on it. No AC in the middle of July. And about, about 12, 13 years ago, I had my truck in the shop. And so I started driving that thing for about two weeks around Baton Rouge in July with no AC. And no power windows, so you had to roll down your window slash air conditioner, right? And so you hang your head out. I enjoyed it, all right? It was kind of fun. But this thing, this thing was about the biggest tank you could put on the road uh, made out of solid metal. And so I would go around, but it would not go above 40 miles an hour. So you can imagine everybody loved me on the road, right? You could not get this thing, like downhill, you could not get it going 40 miles an hour. I had to drop it out of a plane if you wanted it to go 40 miles an hour. And it looked like it had been dropped out of a plane. But I would drive this thing around, just enjoy myself until the August rains hit. Because everybody knows you've seen July rains, like we've had a lot of that this year. But August rain just hits a little bit different. I don't know if you guys know this, all right? And so I'm out here on Frenchtown Road driving this 85 Ram Charger, and the sky falls out. And so I think, well, that's no problem. I roll up my air conditioner, right? I roll up my window and stick my head back in. I hit the lever for the wipers and nothing. Not like they, they were there, but nothing was happening. All right. You understand? Like, there's nothing happening. So I roll my window back down and I stick my head out the car and I come back with the rain hitting my face at 37 miles an hour all the way back to the church, everybody. And I spent the next two weeks begging the repair shop to give me back my truck because I was just because I like comfort. Like, I need a seat with a little bit of cushion on it. Come on, yeah, I just preach today. I need a suspension that actually works. Doesn't make me feel like I am the hood ornament shaking around in the inside of the car. Like, I need brakes. Uh, just call me spoiled, but I need brakes that actually stop the vehicle, all right? I need, like, not a 50-50 chance, like, is today we're going to stop those. I need those comfort, and I know you like comfort as well. Nothing wrong with that. Problem is we let it seep into our spirituality. So, so often in our lives, we enjoy comfort, we enjoy the nicer things, we do it, but we let it seep into our spirituality, and suddenly we're not, we're not able, or we're not able to endure being uncomfortable at any level. We don't like to be uncomfortable at any spot. And the problem with that, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. If you're not uncomfortable in any area of your life, if everything is comfort, everything is easy, everything is just handed to you on a silver platter, you're not growing in any area of your life. And so instead of praying ideas when we come against opposition, instead of praying ideas of God, I pray you would use this opposition to grow me. We're so obsessed with comfort. Instead of praying, God, I I pray you would use this opposition to teach me. God, I pray you use this opposition to move me where you want me to be. We pray prayers like Frank Costanza. Come on, serenity now. Like I just, I got to have peace in my life right now. I got to have, I got to have no pain, no opposition, nothing that's uncomfortable in my spiritual walk. And the problem with that is, if you are not uncomfortable in any area, you are not growing. And here's what I've learned, and that is that the absence of serenity is the presence of opportunity. The absence of serenity, it's the presence of opportunity in our lives. It's an opportunity for us to lean into God. It's an opportunity for us to learn and to grow. 
It's an opportunity that's foreseen. And if you study scripture, you'll find the same thing is true. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is David and Goliath. Where you see David go against this giant. And we all love that story. We've seen it on the flannel graph when we were kids, right? We enjoy that story of David and Goliath. It's amazing, though, when you think about David, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel as a young boy. But he wasn't, like, taken straight to the palace to go to king school. He wasn't, like, given an honorary role in the kingdom. He, wasn't, he was sent to the backside of the hill right after that to take care of sheep and to fight against lions and bears. He was sent away. He probably thought he was forgotten. He probably thought, okay, the anointing happened. It was very confusing for him. And then he sent to the backside of the hill. Probably thought, like, his, idea, his whole entire future was in jeopardy. And so David is sitting back there until one day Goliath shows up. Now, for most of us, we would think about Goliath. For most of us, we would think about him as something to avoid. Goliath is a problem to run away from. Goliath is something we pray never to encounter. Goliath is something we actively run from. But without Goliath, we never would have had David. Because with Goliath is when David steps onto the national scene and he follows the voice of God and he actually has the victory. And I want you to see those giant moments in our life, those moments of opposition, those moments of pain, those moments of those things that rise against us. They're occasion to grow. They give rise to this occasion to grow, to step out into what God has called us to do. And too often I think we view opposition from the mindset of we are obsessed with comfort instead of the mindset, Lord, use this to grow me. And mostly these are used to grow us because they trigger the faith process on the inside of us. And they cause us to recognize how small we actually are, but how big our God is. And so they give us opportunity to lean on him. Oftentimes when we come against a giant that's larger than ourselves, it's opportunity for our faith to be triggered. So we lean on God in the midst of that. Like David cried out in Psalms 18, in my distress, I called to the Lord. In my distress, I called out to him because I knew I couldn't do it. And so I don't tell you these things that faith is triggered by opposition. I don't tell you that to puff you up and to think how awesome you are. But to imagine in those moments that we run to him, that we lean on him, that we depend on him. I don't know how often the Lord allows seasons in our life that cause us to run to him, that show us how small we really are. That cause us to lean and depend on him. And so if you're in a place of pain today, or you're in a place where you're coming up against an opposition, I just want to encourage you. It's an opportunity for faith to grow. It's an opportunity to grow close in your relationship with the Lord. Your greatest need can become a blessing when it drives you to depend on God. Your greatest opposition can become a blessing when it drives you to depend on him, when it triggers the faith inside of you. See, life is comfortable and easy. And when it is, oftentimes when life is comfortable and easy, it leads us to self-dependence. And you might have seen this in your own life, or maybe you saw it in the life of a friend, right? That's, the, that's the, usually the preacher mentality that kind of takes off. You saw it in somebody else, that oftentimes when things are easy, we depend on ourselves. When things go along, we think, well, I did that under my own power and under my own strength, and so I should be able to take care of my life. I'm able to do that. And we live life apart from God, and so when difficulty comes into our lives, we don't know where to turn. And oftentimes, though, when we come against opposition, it's an opportunity to turn to God, to lean on him. Now, without giving you any of the details, I've had years, my wife and I have had years where it has been the hardest years of our life. 2016 was the hardest year of our lives so far. And I like not even talking about the flood, everybody like that. We lost our house and a car and it was all that. But like it was on the list, but it didn't even crack the top three that year. All right. For us, it was just it was just one thing after another. And so we went through these times, but I would just tell you that in the midst of it, I would have prayed, Lord, take it. Lord, just, just end this. I would have prayed to be taken out of it. But when you come to the other side, and you know this is true. If you talk to anybody who's walked through something, 
It not only galvanized our love for one another, it not only galvanized our love as a family, but honestly, it, it, it poured into our love and our dependence on God. That it taught us that we cannot do anything without Him, that we cannot survive without Him, that there is nothing without Him. And it leads us to those times. Your greatest need can become a blessing when it leads you to depend on Him. When it leads you to depend on God, to try out to Him. So here are three kings who normally don't care anything about each other and normally don't care anything about God. Now they have faced some opposition and they're headed down the street to meet with the man of God. And I want to encourage you to do the same. Not that you would get in the escalator and go meet the prophet, but I want to encourage you to get on your face before God. That let whatever it is that you're against drive you to Him instead of away from Him. Because oftentimes we let opposition and we let these times of difficulties drive us away from God. When in fact, the thing we need to be doing is getting in on our face and just seeking his face and his presence and depending on him. Verse 13, Elisha says to the king of Israel, so they've come to the man of God, they've shown up at his doorstep and he's now about to answer them in their question. He says to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Now, I just need to give you a secret. Elisha, just like Elijah before him, is a trash talker, all right? We learned last month that men of God and prophets of God, women of God are trash talkers. Come on, it's just the way that it works, everybody. I think we need to do a series on biblical trash talkers. How about that? We're just going to have a good... But Elisha, Elisha answered him, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. This is the first your mama of the Bible, all right, everybody? Why do you want to talk to me? Go to your mama's prophet. Why don't you go talk to your mama's God? Like, you don't show up when you got trouble. I don't know why God, you're asking him a favor. You've not done nothing for him. So you come talk to me. So he's talking trash to him. No, the king of Israel answered. Watch this. Because it was the Lord who called us, three kings together, to deliver us into the hands of Moab. So they are, they are sticking with their story, all right? It was God who caused this problem in our life. And he calls into the land of Moab. So Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives. So he's a little salty here, all right? He's getting a little, little upset with him. As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve. So I don't know about you guys. You guys, you kings don't serve the Lord that I serve. You go to your mama's God, your mama's prophets. But the God that I serve, y'all not serving the Lord at all. But the one I serve, if I did not have respect, so watch this, if Jehoshaphat over here wasn't here talking to me, I wouldn't even open the door and talk to you guys. By the way, just a, a note to you, parent. Never call your kid anything with fat in it, all right? Just don't do... That's just... That's free today. But if Jehoshaphat wasn't here, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. I wouldn't even talk to you guys. I don't know why you're asking the Lord for a favor. But Jehoshaphat, at least he's a marginal Christian, and so I'll at least talk to him. So he says, and this is at the end, bring me a harpist. And so Elisha's like, all right, I might talk to you, so bring me a harpist. And so you can imagine that kings are probably, probably thinking, like, we are about to die. All right, like, have you understood? Can we, do you understand what's happening, Elisha? Like, our people are dying, the animals are dying. We need God to move. If he doesn't intervene, we're all going to die. And Elisha is like, can we get some Kenny G up in here? Can we get some mood music, right? Like, can we bring me a harpist? We're going to set the scene. Come on, you kings sit there on the cushions. And we're going to, Elisha, they probably thought Elisha has lost his mind. Like, Elijah has completely, but what we're about to see is a lesson I hope you hear, because a lot of us are in the desert. A lot of us are at a place where if God does not intervene, this thing's not going to happen. A lot of us are seeking a word from the Lord. And what I want you to understand, I want you to see here is that worship that honors God brings the presence of God. And this is something that the prophets in the Old Testament, something the church in the New Testament understood so well. Worship that honors God brings the presence of God. It's the fastest way from God is to get into his presence. The fastest way you want to hear from God is to get into his presence. The fastest way into his presence is with worship. 
fastest way in his presence. So he says, bring me a harpist because faith is born in his presence. It's where it's born. It's faith is born in the presence of God. Some of us have no faith because we have no presence. We don't spend any time with God. We don't spend any time hearing his voice, learning to hear from him. And so we'll come on Sundays. We'll have the hoorah moment, right? We'll have all that. But then the rest of the week, there's no worship at all. There's no spending time in his presence at all. And so oftentimes in our life, we're seeking a word from God. We're asking, why am I not hearing from God? And we're not spending any time in worship. I just give you guys some advice, right? When you're out in the car, let's say you're going to work on Monday morning and you're headed to work sitting in traffic. What you don't need to hear is talk radio telling you how bad the traffic is that you are currently sitting in. All right. That's just counterproductive. You understand that, right? You've got to have some worship before you start that week, start that day. When you get home at the end of the day and you want to kill everything that breathes, all right? You just want to do, you got to get some worship in your life. You got to spend time in the presence of God. It's why we start and we end our services in music and worship. That's why we have, we have the pads and stuff at the end. That's not to set the mood or to manipulate you. That's because the presence of God comes when we worship. When we worship together, that's a chance for us to spend time in his presence. Something about it just changes the atmosphere. I encourage you, try it for a week. Every day, set aside, I don't care if you set aside five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, just play some music and be in the car with your family. Spend time in worship in the presence of God. Spend time in worship. You begin to ask, why am I not hearing from God? Why, why does God feel so far away? It's because we're not spending time in his presence. We're not spending time worship. And so Elisha's like, you got to bring me a harp, all right? I got to get some music going. I got to be in the presence of God. And watch this. Watch this in verse 15. It says, when it, then it happened... When the musician played, so it happens now that the hand of the Lord comes upon him. So it works. He's in the presence. And he says, thus saith the Lord, watch what he tells them, make this valley full of ditches. And so this is surprise number two for the kings and the the kings that have come to see him. It's not what they would have expected. Because remember, they knew Elijah, his, his mentor. They knew who Elisha had studied under. And so when Elijah, there was a drought in the land had gone and prayed to God. And remember, we learned last month, the sky opens up, the, the skies grow dark, and the clouds open up, and the, the sky starts to rain. And so these kings probably thought, Elisha is going to pray. We brought the harpist. We played the music. And now he's supposed to pray, and the sky is going to open up, and the rain is going to fall. But he looks at them, and he says, make this valley full of ditches. Go out and dig some ditches in the valley. And this is the second point that I want you to know, because lesson number two is that faith is completed with action. Faith is completed. It's it's triggered by opposition, but it's completed with action. Faith doesn't work until you activate it with action. That's why James chapter 2 says that faith has to become practical. It cannot be ideological. It cannot be philosophical. Faith has to be something that you do. The Greek New Testament, the word for faith is trust that produces action. It has to be coupled with action. It's produced and it turns into something that you do. Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And so someone will say, you have faith, watch this, and I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds. He's basically saying you cannot do it. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. What the writer is saying is, show me your faith without deeds, you can't do that, it's impossible. And I'll show you my faith by my faithfulness. That's what he's saying, I'll show you my faith by the things that I do. I'll show you my faith by being faithful in the seasons of life. I'll show you my faith by answering the call to what God has called me to do. That's what faith is. That when God has called you to set your hand to something, when God has called you to dig a ditch, you dig, everybody, all right? Faith is not hearing the word of the Lord and then saying, well, that was a great word, Lord. I think I'll sit here and wait for you to move. Faith is obeying what God has said to do. Faith is coupled with action. Faith is completed with action. You see the example in Hebrews from Noah. By faith, it says, when warned about what was going to come. 
When Noah was warned about the rain, that the earth had never seen rain before, when he was warned about that God is going to purge the earth, when the flood that we've never seen before, when he's told about that, when he's told to build an ark, watch what it says that Noah does. In holy fear, it doesn't say Noah went back, shut himself in his house and said, Lord, save my family. God told him to build an ark, warned about things not yet seen, told him to build the ark to save his family. And so Noah didn't go back, Lord, save my family. God saved my family. Noah got busy and built an ark and saved his family. When God told him what to do, God gave him the step to take. In faith, he still did what God told him to do. You understand this, right? I think sometimes we get faith too far into the spiritual. And we have faith as this ideological concept, this philosophical thing that I have faith. And we're like the writer of Hebrews, James is writing to us. You show me your faith without deeds. You can't do it. But too often we still attempt it. Bible says you can't, but too often we try to do it. And so Noah builds the ark and saves his family. I want you to get this because faith, when God gives you something to do, when you run to him in times of opposition, when you turn to him to depend on him, it's not just for the purpose of devotion. It's not just so you can be in his presence and get the the good feelings and have all that and just continue to pray and never do anything. No, it's so you can now step out and do what God has called you to do. If he's telling you to dig a ditch, you dig a ditch. If God is calling you to do that, there has to be some action. There has to be some faithfulness that results from it. But too often, we cry and we pray prayers of things we want God to do, but we don't want to take the action that he then tells us to take. All of us want to have our families serving God, and we want to see our children running to the Lord, but we don't want to spend time in the Word as a family. We don't want to take the time to actually spend word. We want God to bless our finances, but we don't want to tithe or to bless other people or to let him use us to bless others that we come across. We want God to give us a great career or a great ministry, but we're not faithful in what he's called us to right now. All of us want to be married, but we don't want to brush our teeth. Come on, somebody. You understand? Like, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to help you dig a ditch. What God has called you to, what he's called you to, the job that he has called us to do. If he says dig, then we start digging. Because faith goes beyond inspiration. It has to take some action. It needs participation. Some of you are thinking that's as far away from what I could do as is possible. It's what the kings were thinking. Because you're thinking, I could never fill a valley full of ditches. Because a lot of you have dug in this Louisiana dirt and clay that we have. Come on, if you've ever dug without power tools, without an excavator, without a tractor. If you've ever dug with a shovel in Louisiana... In the drought time, you understand what I'm saying. You're thinking a valley full of ditches in a drought. Like, I might as well just give up now. I just, I'm, but what I'm trying to tell you today, just to encourage you, is forget about the valley full of ditches. It starts with digging a ditch. These kings are about to go back. It starts with digging just a ditch. It starts with just one thing of faithfulness. Because too often we won't start if we think, well, there's no way I could complete all of this. But God is calling us to be faithful in the season that we're in. To be faithful in the season when you think, well, it's impossible. You think the reality is just start digging a ditch, being faithful in the little thing. You don't have to turn everything around in one day. But you do have to start. Dig a ditch. Whatever it is God has called you to, start on that journey. Begin to do something because faith is completed with action. You want to grow your faith, you start to be faithful in what God has called you to do. Just one whole day that you honor your spouse. One entire day, right, that you say, tell your kids, no, I'm going to hold the line. I'm going to fight you all day long to hold the boundary that I have set in our house. One whole day that you show up to work and say, I'm going to work for the Lord and not for people today. One whole day that you go into that ministry thinking, I'm going to find that one person that I'm going to make a difference in their life. I'm going to follow and I'm going to be faithful in what God has called me to do. I'm going to dig a ditch. I can't dig the whole valley full in one day, but I'm going to start. 
Because faith is completed in action. I'm going to keep my attitude right. I'm going to continue to do this because I need God to be in my life. I need his blessings and I need the conduit he's given us for what he wants to do. We mix some action with what we believe. Back to our text, verse 17. He says, for this is what the Lord says. So Elisha is surprising him. Here's the third one. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet the valley will be filled with water. Number three, third point I have for you today is that faith continues regardless of what is seen. So faith is triggered by opposition. Faith is completed with action. But then faith continues regardless of what we see with our natural eyes. In other words, there may be no signs that God is actually at work. None signs. Back to the verse. He says, you're not going to see the wind or the rain. He's warning them. Look, if your faith is for God to move. I know you looked at the miracles of Elijah. You saw the sky fall out. You saw the rain come. You saw the clouds get dark. I know you saw God do that. But he says this time. This time, God's going to move. He's going to send the water, but you can't look at what you're expecting to see. He said, I know what you're expecting. I know how you think God moves, and I know how you think it's going to happen. And I know you have this in your mind of this is how God is. But he says, forget all of that. God is still going to bring your provision. God is still going to move, but he's going to do it differently than what you think. And you might not see him in the midst of it. And I think so often in our lives, we want to be back in Elijah's day. We want to see the sky grow dark and we want to see the clouds come and we want to see the rain fall. We don't want to live with Elisha where he's saying, you might not see God in the midst of it. You might not see God moving. You might not see his hand, but I promise you his provision is there. I promise you he hasn't forgotten you. I promise you his promise will still come to pass, but you might not see it in the midst of it. And too often we need our faith to continue regardless of what is seen. We have to make that shift of what we see. I would ask you today and ask yourself, Is your faith based on what you see or based on what you believe? Is the faith that you have, is it based on what you see with your eyes or is it based on what you believe? We have to make that shift. There's an incredible story in the New Testament of Jesus where he comes walking on the water to his 12 disciples. And they're in the boat and they're being tossed about by the waves and the storm is going and it's all this. They think they're going down and Jesus comes walking across the water and they see him. And Peter cries out to him. He says, Lord, if it's you then let me come out on the water and walk to you. Which is like the dumbest prayer in the history of the world. Like if it's me, I'm like, Lord, stop the rain and the water and come get in the boat. If that's you, Jesus, that's what I'm praying, all right? But Peter prays, Lord, if it's you, then let me come out on the waves and walk to you. And Jesus looks at him and he says, come, Peter. Now remember this, the word of the Lord to Peter is you can walk on water. The word of the Lord to him. And so Peter gets out and starts to walk across the waves to Jesus until what? Until he gets his eyes off of Jesus and onto the waves and the circumstances around him. And he starts looking at the things around him and the waves and all that. And he starts to sink because Peter forgot the simple fact that walking on water is always a miracle. All right, everybody? I don't know if you understand that. Like, you don't go out here to the co and say, look, he's walking on water. It's kind of choppy today. Like, that's just kind of... It must be difficult to walk. It's always a miracle to walk on water. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. doesn't matter if the water was, was placid and peaceful or if it was crazy with waves. It's always a miracle. But it has to do with what you have your eyes focused on. It has nothing to do with the circumstances. It has everything to do with what you're focused on. With who you're putting your trust in. With where your eyes are set. He was talked about setting our eyes on Jesus. Let's run the race set before us. Where your eyes are set determines... The rest of it. And so too often we let our faith go with the winds and the ways of life. We let whatever our eyes are set on determine what we believe instead of trusting in the God that we claim to believe in. It's the evidence. Hebrews 11 says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And a lot of us are uncomfortable with that verse. 
the evidence of things unseen. It's the unseen that determines the outcome. It's our faith in him. I don't know what dream God has placed in your life. I don't know what needs you have. I don't know why you might be crying out to God, what you may have brought with you today. I don't know your situation, but it's amazing how easy it is for us to get our faith shipwrecked throughout the journey. It's amazing how easy to get shipwrecked. We run into problems. We think we have to run away from God instead of running to him. We run up against opposition and we feel like we need to run away from him instead of running to the only one who can keep us safe. The only one. And so in our faithfulness, I'm here to tell you, let it drive you to God. If you come up against a giant, you come up against a storm, don't self-depend. Let it drive you to him. And then verse 18, this is the promise of God. It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. This is Elijah to the kings. He said, you come here asking for something. And he said, dig some ditches and the valley will be full of water. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And some of you are thinking today, you're thinking, I I don't see any way that my kids are going to serve the Lord. I don't see any way that my marriage is going to come back together. I don't see any way that that ministry is going to happen that God has called me to. I, I just don't see it. I want you to know that in our faithfulness that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That he's saying it's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. It's an easy thing. And oh, by the way, even though you didn't ask me to, he'll also deliver Moab into your hands. Even the thing you weren't asking for. You asked for supplies. Asked for God's going to do above and beyond. And the Vahesians 4 says that God, who the God who can do more than we can ask, think, or imagine through his power at work in us. This is an Old Testament promise. Oh, you can go defeat Moab. Our promise to us that the Holy Spirit inside of us can do more than we could ask, think, or imagine. They didn't even ask to defeat Moab. The Bible says that there are things you're not even asking for. God has plans for your life, things that he wants to do through you, that he has purpose for every single one of you. But it starts with faithfulness, being faithful in the season that he's called us to, being faithful to seek his presence in those moments, being faithful to run to him instead of depending on ourselves. He says, easy in the eyes of the Lord that we remain faithful. The end of your story will be like the end of this one. Verse 20, in the morning it said at the time of sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Eden and the land was filled with water. Your life through faith. Your life through faithfulness be filled with the blessings and the promises of God. God has called you to something. We have to be faithful to dig the ditch. We have to be faithful in what he's called us to. But then God does the supernatural. We're not called to do the miracle. We're not called to do what God has has promised to do. But in our lives, if we remain faithful, he has promised to be faithful in his covenant, promised to be faithful in his promises, the blessing and the power of God in our lives. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. I just want to pray for those who may be stuck. I want to pray for those who may have come against opposition or those who may feel like it's too much or even those who feel like I've been far from God. I've run from him because of this opposition. Those who look at the dream that God has given them and think it's too far away. Those who look at the calling God has on their life and think it's too hard to do. I can't dig a ditch in all the valley. I can't accomplish what he's called me to. I want to pray for you. Before we do, though, there's there's just a section of people that I want to pray for. And that is those of you who have come in today and you say, well, this is all great and it sounds wonderful and I want there to be purpose in my life and I want to follow God. I want to be in his presence, but I feel like I'm a million miles away from God. Circumstances of life, whatever it was that happened, it actually drove me from him. I want you to know that he loves you today. 
I want you to know he's not mad at you for the mistakes that you made. He's not mad at you because you ran. He loves you and he wants to rescue you. You may be asking today, well, who is Jesus to me? Jesus is the perfect son of God. Who lived on this earth a perfect life and then died on the cross in your place and in mine. Rose from the dead so that anyone, including you, anyone can call the name of Jesus and be saved. I want you to know he's not mad at you for where you are today. He's not mad at you for the decisions you made. He wants to rescue and he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And I want you to know it's never too late. That he still has purpose for you. He still wants you. And so if that's you today, you say, I want to have that relationship with him. I want him to rescue me. Starts with a prayer of surrender. And we can pray this prayer with you. I can give you the words to say, but you have to surrender your life to him. So if you say, that's me today, I want to make that decision. I'm not going to make you stand. I'm not going to make you come to the front. I'm not in this to embarrass you. I just want to connect you with Jesus. So church, pray this prayer with them. If that's you today and say these words, we'll all pray together. Say, Jesus, save me. I repent. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. God, we thank you for today, Lord, that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. God, I pray for those who are struggling, Lord, in a time of opposition. I pray for those who have come up against a giant. God, I pray for those, Father, who feel like there is no way out. I pray for those, Lord, who have come to you for a word in your presence. God, I pray that you would show them the promises you have for them are good. Lord, that you would show them that your promise is still secure and that you still love and remember them, God. See us here praying. I ask you, Lord, in the midst of those things, God, for those, Father, who have allowed problems to get them down, Lord, those who have come against opposition, Lord, that we would begin to be faithful in the season you've called us to. I thank you, Lord, that as we remain faithful in what you've called us to do, that you'll continue to make your promises show in our lives. Lord, that those who have been driven to self-dependence would learn that their dependence is on you alone. Those of us that have let pride rise in our heart would know, Father, that our strength is in you alone. And so I pray right now a blessing for those in the room, those watching online, that even in this week as we begin to dig ditches, Lord, even in this next month, the rest of this year, as we begin to dig a ditch, Lord, as we begin to be faithful to what you've called us to, that we would see the blessings and the promises of God in our life. That you would encourage us, strengthen us, bless us. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. We'll give you all of the glory. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's church said amen and amen. Come on church, can we put our hands together for what God has done?